So what God has done has to be the grounds of our hope when we face the future. But we don't think like that, do we? When we've been struck with difficulty or when struggle has visited and come knocking at our door, what we do is we evaluate, we try to measure up our situation and we try to plan and plot a route on the basis of our potential. We try to measure it on the basis of how bad we have done or how bad somebody else has done. And what our potential is to be to move through that and press on. And we scan around ourselves for looking for something we control or something we can change or something we can do. Some of which are very good things to do, but can I tell you, they won't bring you lasting hope. Because if any of your solutions are about built on your ability to deliver them, then it's only a matter of time before you're disappointed. It's only a matter of time before you find yourself on sinking sand. All other religion in the world is based on the idea that I can do something to make myself acceptable and somehow wrestle some sort of favour from heaven. And when I say religion, I'm not just talking about religions that meet in a building. Because religion is simply a set of answers to a set of questions like this. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? What is life about? How do I connect to anything spiritual? Everybody has a set of answers to those questions. They get pumped over the radio waves and the airwaves to you. Every TV program is broadcasting values about where you can find hope, where you can find salvation, who you are as a person, how you can be saved. But all of those solutions, bar one... Look, encourage you to try to find your answers and hope in something you bring to the deal, something you can do. And the one exception is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings us news that when we are unable to overcome certain things that we do or have been, had done to us, God is bigger than that. He has done something. So the message today is our hope in God's action for us. What God has done is the grounds of how we can face the future. We sing that song and we sung it recently. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And in case we miss it, as the refrain echoes, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you remember it? Have you woken up to that reality? For me, caution John, as we've tried to work through what's happened this week, We've had to decide where we're going to take our stand. And on Christ the solid rock, we're going to try to stand because we've recognised that all of the ground is sinking sand. But we're not the first church that's had to hear this message because back in Corinth in the first century, there was a church family of people who, well, they'd come to hear this message of Jesus Christ, his mercy and being reconciled to God, but right with him, and they looked around at their, their community, they looked around at their city, they recognised that it did not have the answers that were big enough to carry their life, that could carry the weight, and so they turned to Jesus. But it was so difficult for them, because turning to Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to try better, it's, it's a total surrender. It's a total surrender to him and a decision to say, you will set the direction of my life, I will trust in you, and I recognise that many people around me will be living for other Gospels or other worldviews or other life patterns. Let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth is in modern day Greece, and it's sort of um, a latch in a a point of land between two big land masses. So if there was any trade that moved between these two big land masses, it had to go through this area of Corinth. 
So the sort of people who frequented that place weren't even from there most of the time. So they were like sailors and travellers. They were young. And you, well, anybody who's seen any pop culture on TV says that when the restraints of sort of a stable community start to be removed, people just let loose and, and live wild. And in Corinth, that's exactly what they, they used to do. To, to be, it's so bad that they became, um, there was a verb, to be Corinthian. To be Corinthian basically meant that you were greedy with your money, but you were very generous with your body. In fact, on the hill, there was a big hill called the, um, uh, the Amphicorinthian, I think it was called. And above there, they had a temple to the goddess uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and love. And what would happen is on the evenings, um, the, the travellers, the merchants, the people who just wanted to live the way they wanted to live, uh, they would wait for the thousand or so temple prostitutes, both male and female, who would come down and they would celebrate love in a way that, well, we're encouraged to celebrate it on a Saturday night down Church Street or, or like that kind of thing. So if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who's decided, I don't want to live like that, yet I'm in the middle of Corinth, is it going to be easy for you? Imagine your name's Julius. You're Julius the Roman, and I live in Corinth, and I've decided to trust in Jesus. And you go out on a Friday night with all of your mates, and you're like, right, let, let, let's, you know, let, 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 let me enjoy my time with my mates. And you go to somebody's house, and somebody gets the wine out, and you start to drink, and the rest start taking their clothes off, and jumping into bed, and Julius is left there going, uh... Could we do something else tonight? And of course, under that kind of pressure, there were people in the church of Corinth who had trusted Jesus, but they were just feeling the pull. They were in a world that just didn't love God and had no time for God, and they were... Well, and the long and the short of it is that the Bible records that actually there's some terrible things that happened. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is the section just beforehand, we find that within the church there is somebody who is having an affair with his stepmom. And the worrying thing is the church, they're so used to the junk around them that they're like, whatever. We find at the beginning of this chapter, we find that there's members of the church there who are, they're going to, they're doing sort of, um, uh, almost like being ambulance chases one with another, they're taking each other to court. They're sort of, oh, well, you've slighted me, so I'm going to deal with this, and I'm, you know, I'm going to stand up for my rights. I'm going to have an argument. And there were touchy people. And that's what happens. When you take your eyes off Jesus, you become very insecure and touchy, and you're almost gunning for the fight. And so there was anger, and there was bitterness, there was slander, and there was malice. So there was sexual chaos, there was relational chaos. And the frightening thing is that this was in the church. And the interesting thing is how the Apostle Paul, who writes to them, tells them how to deal with it. How would you write, and what would you tell them to do about it? My instinct is to stand at the front and yell really loudly, Just stop it, will you? That's what we do with our kids, isn't it, when they're messing and ripping each other's out. Just stop it, will you? But you know, as you say that to your kids, you say it with an ounce of despair, because as much as you can tell them to stop it, the problem isn't actually, or the source of the problem, isn't in the actions that they do, the fact that they're ripping their sister's hair out, it's the fact that there's a problem inside of here. Because all of our actions have their source, their, if you like, the fount of our actions is our heart. So although you may be able to restrain a youngster from ripping their sister's hair out, you can't make them want to not do it, can you? They still want to do it, just they know the consequences if they do. 
I'm guessing that some of you here may be tempted to think that basically at church you get told, don't do that or God will batter you. Oh dear, better do what God says or he'll kill my cat, give me cancer and send me to hell. Oh, can I tell you that is not the style of the God of heaven because he has something bigger and better on offer. Turn your eyes down here please and let's have a little look at what is being said in these verses. Can you see verse 9? Can you all see it? I want you to look at it so you can see it's coming from the Bible and not from me. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Oh, that first bit, I knew that, even as a kid. Or do you not know that the the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? I knew that. I knew that God doesn't let uh, bad people into heaven. I know that he can't connect himself because he's a holy, perfect God. I knew that as a kid. So my strategy was to find some way in which I could qualify myself as not being a wrongdoer. So what I would do is the things that I was really bad at and the bad stinking attitudes within my heart, I'd well, just ignore them. And then the things that I was really good at, I'd take a lot of pride in and I'd try and show them off and be good. And what I'd do is I'd try and make deals with God. God, if you let me have this, then I won't do this, 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 this and this. And then there's this list. And these lists of ten things here, they're just simply a list of ten things that were going on in the church. Okay? And as you read through them, you'll find that that strategy of sort of trying to cover up and minimise the seriousness of sin won't work for us because of the sort of things that get covered. So if you look at it there, you'll see... Hold on, I've got to pull it up one minute. I want to make sure I'm reading from the same version that you are. So if you look there, well, the ten things, you you can see them, can't you? Do not be deceived, neither sexually or immoral. That word is the Greek word porneo. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's talking about any kind of sexual relationships that are outside a monogamous, heterosexual, man-woman, married commitment. So it includes what you click on on the internet. It includes what you allow your TV remote to linger on late at night. It includes the places you allow your imagination to go when you see that fella who looks so dashing, who's broad-shouldered and thin at the waist. It includes all of that what about the next one? Nor idolaters. To, idolater, to be an idolater is to be somebody who worships something other than God. I mean, we heard about Alan and his car. Can I tell you Alan doesn't worship his car? But there's plenty of us who live and say, Do you know, if I just have that thing, I can get through life. If I just look this way, then I can get through life. There's more about sexual immora- immorality there. Thieves, stealing, thievery. But then it gets even more personal because I could sort of maybe twist my brain to think that I'm not in any of those categories. But then it says, nor the greedy. Do you know what greed is? Greed is saying, I'm not satisfied with what I want. I've got, I want more. I'm prepared to go into debt to get that because I just have to have it. It'll bring me comfort and joy or status or significance if I just have that thing. Oh, I really want it. Or I look at somebody else who's got it and go, bitch. Or something like that. I just, greediness. I, I want, I want. What about the next one? Drunkenness, finding your escape in the bottom of a bottle. And let's face it, life is hard. 
But to be a drunkard is to be somebody who consistently finds their strategy for coping with life by giving chemicals to your brain to stop it working properly. And that's to dishonor God because he says the place where we're supposed to run in times of difficulty and our struggle is to him. What you're saying is this pot of chemicals here brings more life-sustaining power than the true God of heaven. Can you think of a way to insult him more? What about the others there? I mean, you can see them, can't you? Or slanderers, now that was what was going on in that church. They were calling each other for all kinds. Swindlers, they were prepared to try and make a fast book even off people. Now this is in the church. So we stand up here, and just in case we, we, we don't spot it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be in relationship with God. And he says it again. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And suddenly I realise I'm stuffed. Because my strategy was to put off those things, but I find I can't. And even if the outward actions, I can just about squeeze myself tightly enough not to do them, the fact is that some of the intentions of the heart, my heart, are to go that way anyway. I would much rather gravitate to some of those things than trust and rely and depend upon God. But that's only the start of how stuffed I am. Because what we find here, I want you to notice this. Do you notice in verse 9, look. Do you not know that the wicked or the ungodly or the unrighteous, depending on which translation it is, do you not know that they will not inherit the kingdom of God? And what is being set up here is, if you like, two teams. Because that phrase is used in verse 1 at the top of chapter 6. If any one of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly. Okay, the ungodly and the wicked is the same thing there. So what we're being told here is spiritually you're on somebody's team. Now it's Euro 2012 at the moment, and after that all gets finished, there'll be all the mad transfer market going on. They'll you know, have spotted the best players, they'll be given a price. So they, one, one week they are wearing red, and they're under one manager. And what they do is they play their game in the way that that manager wants them to play the game. They wear that shirt with pride, they carry that ethos. What the manager says, that's what they follow. But then perhaps what might happen in the, in, after Euro 2012 is that there's well, the transfer market where the player, well somebody pays for him, liberates him from one team, from under one manager, from wearing one kit and moves him to the other. What we've been told here is that spiritually speaking there are only two teams in the world. There is the kingdom of God. And under the kingdom of God, you love God, you live for him, you trust him, you receive his mercy, you let his kingdom, his rule, at work in your life and say, that is what I'm going to take my stand on in all matters of my life. Or there's the other kingdom, the kingdom, the other rule, the other team, which is people who, well, they're just spiritually not related to God at all. Cut off from his mercy, not inheriting his blessing, spiritually lost and dead in his eyes. Which team am I naturally on? Well, it tells me, doesn't it? I'm on this team. I'm on this team. Church in Corinth, which team are you on? Well, it ain't the God team. You can't do anything to get in it. You're wearing the shirt and dancing to the tune and listening to the manager and listening to the master of a world that is against God. You're not in his team. And Paul looks at this church and he says... That's reality. That is the spiritual reality as God sees it. But then something happens. And if you phase down, now please, this is the place where I want you to go. This is the place where things get changed. Not by what you do, but by what God has done. Look down again at what happens at the beginning 
of verse 11. And that was what some of you were. That was what some of you were. Have you noticed how it's an identity? Have you noticed how so often when we do things wrong, or somebody does something wrong, somebody tells us a lie, we don't say, oh, that person's just told us a lie. We say, that person's a liar. If somebody is unfaithful in their marriage, we don't say, that person's unfaithful in their marriage. We say, that person's an adulterer. What we do is the things that we do wrong against people and things that people do wrong against them, uh, us, we feel it and we want to create it into an identity. We want to say that is who we are. We agree with God that that is who we are. We're nothing more really than the way we have been treated and the way we treat others and the way we treat God. But notice the past tense here. Something has happened that has changed that. That is what you once were. But something has happened that has moved us from that spiritual state to another. Look at it. And it's wonderful. And that is what you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What we're being told is God sees us in our lostness, in our foolishness, in our sinfulness, being marked and identified by the fact that we do not measure up and we do not want to follow God. And he says in his mercy, I'm going to pay a transfer fee. I'm going to do something so that you are moved from one team, one spiritual realm, to another. So please, immediately... If you're somebody who thinks a Christian is somebody who just tries to do a bit better, tries hard, comes to church and uh, play acts on a Sunday and lives no differently in the week, that can't be the case. A Christian is somebody who has welcomed God saying, I'm going to do a work in your life, I'm going to change your status, so that whereas before you used to be defined by what you did and what you were like, Those things may still be realities in your life, but they don't define you anymore. That's not your identity. Your identity, who you are, will be shaped, marked, and defined by what I have done. You are now mine. And you may well be somebody who still struggles, if your name's Julius, not to take your clothes off and get hammered. But no longer will that be what defines you. I will say you are mine, and I'm going to call you out of that behaviour. I'm going to call you to me and make you my own. How does he do it? Well, three things we're told have to happen. And it's interesting, in the original language, it doesn't come out in this translation, but if you look here, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In fact, in the original language, that word but, God's intervention is there three times. It actually reads, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's supposed to connotate the fact that those, that the way the verbs work there is to say that this was something passive for you, but active for another. What has Jesus done? He's done three things for us. He offers these three things to anybody who will come. First of all, washed. Any of you seen or read Lady Macbeth? Do you remember, maybe you've seen a modern uh, Kenneth Batbrana version of it? But there's this Lady Macbeth who has murdered her husband and done all kinds of horrible things. 
And yet in the night, she gets up and she starts walking around. And she keeps looking and she's wiping her hands and getting all stressed out. And she's going, oh wretched spot, oh wretched spot, why won't you be gone? And it's, it's, a, it's a visual picture of her conscience because she knows she is soiled and has failed and is dirty and grubby. Do you know what shame is? Shame is that sense that you feel when you know, you know that you're not clean. But you were washed. Jesus comes knowing the worst about us and says, I will clean you. And sometimes we don't want to receive that, do we? Sometimes we like the idea. We make it. We make the fact that we are soiled and unclean, we make that our identity. Jesus can love somebody else, he can clean somebody else, but I'm too dirty. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. He invites all of us to live in the reality that when we receive him as Lord and Saviour, everything is washed clean. There is no stain. Past present or future it is gone he washes us clean we can once again look in the mirror and say you are of value not because we bring anything to the deal but because Jesus has said I love you so much to clean you and the cost of me cleaning you is the spilling of my precious blood I will wash you and make you new but second of all we see here but you were sanctified this is a precious thing to me I'll be honest with you the word sanctified and it's used in different ways in the New Testament sometimes sometimes it talks about the change that happens in a believer's life in that you progress from putting off the old Corinthian way of living and living more and more in keeping what Jesus has done but the word sanctified literally means to be set apart When Jesus claims you with his blood, he buys you and he says, You, come here. You're mine now. I sanctify you and set you apart for a purpose, for a cause, to live for me, to enjoy me, to know my grace. And what's shocking here is what they're like. Lord, look at them. They're losers. They're grubby. They're dirty. If you ever pick somebody... Pick somebody with more value. Pick an achiever. Pick somebody who's made it. Pick somebody who's, who, who can get the job done. Pick somebody who isn't going to let you down, Lord. You. You may not be choice to other people, but you're choice to me. Come here. Come here. I want to let you have the fullness of my riches. I want to do something precious in your life. When you let Jesus in, he washes you, he sanctifies you. And thirdly, what do we see here? But you were uh, justified. Let me just double check I've got the right translation. Because sometimes it's translated justified and then put right. Yeah, you were justified. Justified is a legal term. It's a term out of the courthouse. So when we have a charge against somebody... The way it works is you go to the courthouse and you say, this is the charge that I have against them. And if it's guilty, somebody somewhere has to pay. Agreed? That's just the way it works. So if you've failed in some sense, guilty, you have to pay. Somebody has to pay. And Christ came to pay our debt for us to settle the issue of guilt. So what Christ does is he walks inside the, the courthouse with us and says, 
guilty. But I will pay. The debt that is outstanding, the mark against their name, I will pay and I will deal with it. But more than that, what he does is he gives us his record. This is what the theologians call the great exchange. In fact, no, the ones who want to make it a very easy language, they call it um, uh, the great exchange. The really brainy people with more letters after their name than in their name, they call it double imputation. Okay, everybody say with me. Double imputation. No, no, everybody say with me. Double imputation, okay? You've suddenly become theologians. Well done. What does it mean to impute is to give something or put something onto somebody else? A double imputation happens. Our sin and the consequences of all our sin, past, present and future, get put onto him, but all his perfection, his sinlessness, his beauty, his merit, his riches, his worth, gets imputed, put onto us. And you look at somebody, maybe in our church, or maybe you've said they're a believer, and you look at them and all you see is the junk. And you'd be right. But the Lord looks at them and sees Jesus. They're justified. Another way of describing justification is saying, you've got the verdict of that very last day now. We know now how God will view us when he sees us. I wonder whether you've already got your excuses ready. Some of you have talked about this. Oh, I hope he lets me in. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to honour him. I've tried to trust him. I've asked him to forgive me. Oh, when I get there, will, it, will, will I have to explain myself? No. When you're justified, you already know Jesus has got it covered. You know now how God will receive you. He will receive you as if you are Jesus. Do you think he's going to get a warm welcome? You better believe it. And these are three things that you might be tempted to achieve yourself. I can clean myself up. No, you can't. I can be spiritually pure. No, you can't. Don't you know? Look at your track record. Look at the state of your heart. Look at what you cover up. You can't do it. But you were cleansed, washed. You try to set yourself apart. You try to find something. You define yourself by something. Maybe it's the clothes that you wear. Maybe it's the people that you, you, uh, you meet with. Maybe it's the amount of money you've got. I'm somebody. Look, I've marked myself out. I am somebody. I am somebody. Oh, you want him seven billion. You're nobody. Neither am I. And yet God comes to us and says, you are mine. I set you apart. We try to justify ourselves. We even use that in argument, don't we? When uh, somebody ch- ch- accuses us of wrong, we're like, uh, 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 uh. we try to justify ourselves, and it's just verbal drivel that comes out. And Jesus says, you have no chance of doing this for yourself, but I will justify you. I will take all the charges against you. I will carry the weight of them, and I will give you my perfect record. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And can I tell you, for Julius, when he was out on that Friday or Saturday night in Corinth, and he saw all the other people carrying on, and he realised that although he'd laid hold of God's promises, he realised that his heart wasn't perfectly clean yet, and he felt within himself the draw and the drag to be like that. One of two things were going to happen. He was going to run into it, or he was going to, as in run into the things that were being offered him, and he, or he was going to run back to the gospel, to the God who had saved him and made him somebody new. Can I tell you, that is the story of every Christian every day of their life. 
I would love to be able to stand here and tell you that every time in my life I've run back to God, but there are times when I have indulged, flirted with, and pushed into my sin. And I know you're not going to judge me because you do exactly the same, don't you? And there are times in which we go so far, so far, so far, and we hurt other people. But we're given a hint here in this passage as to how you know the difference between somebody whose steady state is, I belong to Jesus, or somebody who is kidding themselves and running away, and aren't really a believer at all. And it comes in that last phrase, can you see it there? You were justified, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of God. Do you get that? God's Spirit comes into our life so that we have new desires. And this is the mark. When you call down your sin and you see what you've done, where is the inclination of your heart to run? Will you run for salvation into your sin? Sometimes we do that, don't we? Oh, I've eaten a chocolate bar. Oh, no, I feel terrible. I'll eat another. What's going on there? I'll retreat into my sin. There's no power in my sin. Or you can run back to God and say, do you know what? I don't need to indulge in gluttony. Christ has given me all I need. He's the one with the power. He's the one that loves me. That chocolate bar don't love me. That chocolate bar just wants to put stuff on my hips. Christ wants me to live for him and enjoy him as my source of comfort and escape. Rush to him as my anchor for my soul and my rest. The steady state of any believer will be one where the Spirit of God makes us just want to run to him for our salvation, our rescue and our hope. The Spirit of God makes us hate the sin because of what it did to Jesus. You will never find a genuine believer go in, just simply go in, when they've had their sin pointed out. God will forgive me, that's what he does. Now you'll find a genuine believer because of the Spirit of God at work in their life going, how could I do that to my Lord? I hate sin. I want it as far away from me as possible. I hate what it does to me, but I want to stand in the promises of Jesus and believe that he has washed me, he has set me apart, and he has justified me. That's what I want to live by. I want to put people around me who will help me and encourage me to do that. I don't want to be Corinthian anymore. I want to live under his loving, gracious, abounding, and merciful rule. And we're going to look more at what actual repentance looks like when we get down to this one. That's where we go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about God's presence. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, well, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 about what repentance will look like and where it leads. And we'll look at that. But for the moment, as I finish, I just want to bring three applications to make sure that we're clear on what it means to be and part of the Christian community. The first one is this. The Bible tells us not to be surprised when we see evidence that we are still living in a world in rejection of God and we still have sin lingering in our hearts. Don't be surprised. But I think in this, what we've got is a model of what we're supposed to do and what God will do in us because he loves us. And We've already echoed it in the statement at Koshbor, but I just want to say it again. You cover your sin, if God loves you, he will expose it. Won't he? He won't let you hide. It's too dangerous to you spiritually. Hiding your sin twists you. It's like gangrene. Oh, it's terrible. If you cover your sin and God loves you, he will expose it. And when you expose your sin and you welcome that, 
God will cover it. Isn't that good news? I don't need to pretend anymore. I don't. I'm tempted to. I don't need to. I think this thing also tells us that what we need to do is root out sin in our heart. Don't we? We know that sin is deceitful and wicked. That's the thing that wrecks lives. I know that sometimes it feels as if the big issues in our life are how do I pay the bills? How do I face the next day? How do I get my kids to sit still and do as they're told? How can I move on and, and make sure I've got further on in business? How can I find a fella? And we sometimes wonder, those are the big issues in life. Can I tell you that God says the biggest thing, the thing that causes the most destruction, ruins your life and dishonours him and treats him as nothing, is sin. So we will root it out. We'll have honest accountability. He has called us out to be his people. He didn't free us from sin, so we'd go back and start wallowing in it. You cannot be a professing Christian and enjoy this stuff. We've got to be a church that roots it out. And I think more than anything, what we will do as we hear this news is we will be the most happy and joyful people. Because unlike anybody else, if they haven't heard this news, or unlike anybody who has heard this news and said, I'm going to reject it, we are the people who have an honest evaluation of what life is, and we have somebody who brings us a hope beyond ourselves. Hallelujah! What a saviour! He is for us, and he is with us. He is the one who is going to see us through. Our church may feel like we're in jeopardy or under threat, but we're not. He's bigger than sin. He's bigger than you and me and our individual failures. He's bigger than anything that the devil may throw at us. And on that morning, a good Friday, 2,000 years ago, if you stood by and watched a fella drowning in his own bodily fluid, pinned to a wooden gibbet, you'd have said, all hell has won! At that worst and most dark of moments when the clouds came over, the devil's won, sinners won. And in that very moment, he was achieving for us a salvation that will echo through eternity and will go to every corner of the world and one day everybody will recognise Jesus did it. He is Lord and he defeats sin. That is what some of you once were. But that's not you now if you've called on me and trusted in me but you were washed by me but you were sanctified by me but you were justified by me through Jesus Christ and by my spirit have a moment of quiet just while Jane comes up makes ready to sing this song let's bow our heads together